You're listening to a podcast by the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, where top China experts answer your questions like, how does Canada's relationship with China impact U.S.-China relations and U.S.-Canada relations? Keep listening to find out more on where the two North American nations agree and disagree on China. We hope you enjoy. Hello, my name is Diana Fu. I'm an associate professor of political science at the University of Toronto and a public intellectuals fellow with the National Committee. On behalf of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, I am pleased to be moderating today's discussion on Canada-China relationship. I am joined by Gordon Holden, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Alberta, and Pascal Massot, Assistant Professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. Welcome to you both. Within the two pages covering China, Mm -hmm. what do you see as the convergences and the divergences in Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy versus the U.S. with regards to its approach to China? Yeah, that's a a really good question. It's actually um, more difficult to answer than it would seem on the face of it. But um, the just you know, to to say one word about the the content of the IPS strategy on China, the Canadian one, um, the Canadian strategy actually maps uh, and has, you know, articulates an effort to map Canada's relation with China across four levels. And so it tries to complicate a little bit the framework and talks about China at the domestic level, bilateral level, regional level, multilateral level. And I think that that's actually a really interesting framework to look at uh, China through these multiple lenses. Um, you know, on, on uh, convergences and divergences, I think that if you look at the strategies broadly, you know, of course, there are fundamental overlaps, strategic overlaps between American and Canadian, you know, um, approaches to the region. And if I were to just mention, you know, it's not necessarily, um, actually, I think both strategies spelled this out, but, you know, a clear area of convergence right now would be around the reorganization of global supply chains, um, specifically in the context of critical minerals. Um, and so, you know, Canada released its own strategy uh, last year, apart from the Indo-Pacific strategy, a critical minerals strategy. Um, and Canada's part, as is the U.S., of the Minerals uh, Security Partnership um, that was also announced last year. And I think on there, you know, we can, there's much to do. And, you know, I hope to see, to see a lot of work on that. If, you know, if I were to mention another, another area where I think Canada and the U.S. have, have you know, worked uh, on something together, you know, when, when, um, at the multilateral level, part of the Canadian Indo-Pacific strategy is to actually um, supplement our diplomatic capacity outside on China, but outside of China. So in capitals like, you know, Brussels and, and Geneva and, and New York. And there, I think that the US and Canada can actually also do some good work together. Um, it, if I were to say a couple of words on Divergences. Um, just a couple of words, and then we'll turn to yes. the holding. Yes. I will just mention. Um, you know, I think in in some ways, 
first of all, when you look at the American Indo-Pacific strategy, Canada is not mentioned in the document. And I think that that's uh, a symptom of the fact that Canada, I think in, in um, the American imaginary is not necessarily part and parcel of the Indo-Pacific region, but more of the North American landscape. And, you know, in some ways, Canada has some, some share of the blame here uh, to bear, but uh, this has led to situations where, for example, you know, Canada was not invited to participate in IPAF from the get-go, you know, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Um, now, you know, the, the US administration has indicated, you know, um, openness to Canada joining, but this also, um, so there's there's this, you know, side of things. The, the, the other last thing that I would mention is just that, um, uh, you know, the, the, the American and Canadian governments have in recent years, um, you know, developed different postures regarding multilateral trading uh, um, agreements. And so a clear example of that was that the US withdrew from the TPP, whereas Canada kind of joined the CPTPP. So there are there are differences in approaches and, and policy in the region. Yeah. Great. Uh, Professor Holden, let's uh, let's turn to you. You have spent 22 years of a very long career working with the Canadian Foreign Services, uh, specifically on Chinese affairs. And uh, as most of us know, who've been looking at the news, Canada and China relations have once again fallen out, this time over uh, Beijing's meddling in Canada's two federal elections, as well as municipal elections. And as we speak, the Canadian government is still wrestling with the appropriate responses and countermeasures, and different parties are debating over the merits and dangers, in particular, of a Foreign Agents Registry Act. Now, both the United States and Australia have such acts, which basically require foreign entities acting on behalf of foreign governments to register. What do you make of the merits of this act? How do you think Canada's reaction to Beijing will impact um, Indo-Pacific relations more broadly? So two parts to this question. Sure. Well, thank you very much. On the first question, I would say that most countries don't have such a registry. I mean, there's only to I think Russia actually has one, I believe. America really set the the, uh, the bar when they in the 1930s when they set up their their own act. Australia five years ago. Uh, I see some merits to it, absolutely, but I am concerned that people's expectations will be exaggerated. Um, there are still issues of political interference that occur in the United States in Australia. Uh, this is one tool to be used. Um, the other thing I would say is that. It's really China's driven this. It's not as if folks are worried about uh, France or Dutch or um, Sri Lankan um, uh, interference. Or It's really driven almost entirely by China. Without China, I know there are concerns about Russia, Iran, et cetera. Without China, this act would not have been broadly discussed. And I think there is a clear view of government to move forward on this. I think it'll take some time, as all things parliamentary do. But... I also know that amongst the Canadian population of those who are of, um, Canadians of Chinese heritage, um, they look at this, many of them look at this somewhat askance. And just as a, as a reference point, I think less than 1% of the US population is Chinese, almost 5% of the Canadian population is Chinese. So it's five times the per capita representation of that community. And some in that community, and I've seen lots of written evidence and as well as hearsay, concern that it is a tool being used and will be used against Chinese in some fashion. They know maybe not aren't able to 
uh, enunciating precisely how, but there is that concern. The other thing I would say is I think it's a good thing overall, as long as it's properly drafted and properly implemented. But don't expect that to mean the end of political interference, of course, um, just as it hasn't disappeared in Australia or the United States. Um, there are missions, Chinese missions, that will, as is their way, probably continue to seek to um, alter events domestically. And with this interconnected world, uh, there's lots of uh, things that come directly out of China in terms of media, WeChat, all sorts of ways of maybe not quite as efficiently as using it through others. But I think identifying people who are working behalf of a foreign entity is a good thing. Let's just be careful that we're not using it as a cudgel against um, law-abiding Canadians who just happen to have friends in China uh, or be of Chinese heritage. That's right. Second, you mentioned, hmm. uh, if I might interrupt, um, you mentioned that this Foreign Registries Act is one tool of a range of instruments that could be applied. What are some of those other instruments in your view that can be leveraged to counter foreign interference, whether it be from China or from other foreign governments? Well, one thing that I've noticed over decades is that um, um, the Americans have been far more aggressive at using the, the law uh, to prosecute um, individuals who are seen to have been conducting espionage or um, unacceptable activities contrary to American law, that is in the case in Canada. Um, we have tended to take a somewhat softer approach. Uh, we may ask a diplomat to leave, but there have been very few cases of Canadian citizens or persons of uh, resident in, in Canada who are of Chinese origin who have been um, prosecuted under the law. Uh, it's a different approach. I think that's one thing that we could be somewhat more aggressive about. I can't speak about my past, but I know of many cases, uh, as anyone who's worked on this relationship for a long time, where uh, individuals um, did things that would have laid them open to charges. One of the reasons is that our security agencies, as is the extent of the United States as well, don't want to uh, bring evidence to court uh, where it can expose methods and sources, et cetera. There's ways around that through uh, secret courts, but it's very time-consuming, very difficult, and, the, and uh, sometimes seems uh, perhaps not worth the effort. Uh, the other thing which is more difficult to contain is influence internationally uh, through through the media, through cyber methods. Um, that's always going to be, I think, a cat and mouse game. Uh, we are developing, and I think Pascal made mention of this, um, a greater capacity, and that's mentioned even in the uh, Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, but that will be something that evolves so quickly, as does the technology. And we will have to work closely with our Five Eyes neighbors and our broader NATO neighbors uh, in, in terms of finding shared ways of doing this. We cannot do it alone. I think when the Western community works in synchronous uh, manner, they, we have a better chance of preventing that sort of broad influence peddling that comes from foreign states. Mm -hmm. And let me rephrase the second part of the question that I asked you earlier. What? How do you think Canada's reactions to Beijing, whether it be through uh, the Foreign Agents Registry Act or, as we've seen already, diplomatic expulsion, um, how do you make? How do you think these kinds of reactions um, that have already been taken or will be taken uh, will impact uh, Indo-Pacific relations more broadly? Sure. Well, of course, our relationship with China itself is that a 
historical low. And I've seen lots of low points, but this is lower than anything I'd experienced in many decades. Uh, I think in places like it varies. In Taiwan, I think it's welcomed. Um, standing up to China is seen as positive. Uh, and similarly, in Japan, uh, which would be on the harder side of the um, containment side, or at least restraint vis-a-vis -vis Beijing, Korea slightly less, but still there's a big, big chunk of the strategy that is aimed at strengthening relations with those two countries. When you get to ASEAN, it changes quite a lot. Um, I was in China in March, April, um, and part of that was at the BOA Forum. A lot of uh, Asians present, particularly from ASEAN, their officials and even their NGOs tend to be, we don't want to take sides. Don't make us. So for them, I don't think it'll particularly bother them, except a couple that are very much aligned with uh, with China, such as Myanmar and perhaps Laos. But they do not want to be pressured uh, into a us-them uh, strategy. They mm -hmm. will welcome the attention to the region, the resources being sent there. case of India, um, I'm afraid they may not much notice other than their, their mission here. Uh, we're a pretty small country. Uh, India runs a, is a pretty big country. So I think some will pay attention, some won't. Um, but I'm, I have a separate concern in that the strategy of the China portion was uh, uniformly negative or almost negative. Some talk about the the trade potential and investment, et cetera. But most of the punches were pulled when it came to the domestic politics of the rest of the Indo-Pacific region. And there are some very troubled regions. India itself is a treatment of its 300 million strong Muslim minority, Myanmar, et cetera. Clearly the strategy, as would any government document, was aimed at advancing our interests in those countries. So why would you use this? But I did notice a sharp contrast between the approach taken to China and the pass given generally to any shortcomings in the other countries. Over. Uh, Professor Masso, back to you. Uh, just a few questions looking ahead to navigating relations uh, with China and the Indo-Pacific. There's been a lot of talk about cooperation, both in the United States and Canada and elsewhere uh, with China on issues like the environment and global health and others. And, you know, this is all good and rational, um, but in your view, what are some concrete steps to take both at the federal level and perhaps at provincial and other subnational levels? What progress have you seen, if any, on cooperation in these areas in Canada? Um, and, and what are some of the challenges to cooperation if you haven't seen much progress? Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, the challenges are huge. Um, it's become incredibly difficult. To, to think and act um, on areas, even in areas, you know, of shared interest or global interest. I mean, the strategy itself, the Indo-Pacific strategy mentions, as you say, you know, the environment, global health, non-proliferation as well. Um, I mean, I think a, a, a really interesting example of uh, preserving that space for functional you know, working relationship in, in the area of environment and climate change was in fact, just one week after the strategy was published and, um, you know, unveiled in uh, late November, 2022. In the first week of December, um, uh, Canada had accepted to host uh, COP15, the biodiversity um, multilateral conference um, that China was 
uh, chairing but couldn't host because of the COVID situation. And so you had this, this event just one week after the release of, of the Canadian Indo-Pacific strategy, which was not uh, received very positively, of course, by China, um, where the two governments had to work together to deliver that conference. And by all accounts, um, uh, the working relationship was uh, uh, good between the two environment ministers and the two teams on the ground in Montreal. And the, the, the conference actually led to the Kunming Montreal uh, Global Biodiversity Framework, which is um, a really important um, uh, progress. You know, um, I think, you know, agreed to, to conserve uh, upwards of 30% of all oceans and lands, you know, by 2030. So, um, you know, so we don't talk about this very much, but it, it you know, this show that it could be done and arguably that it, it has to be done. Um, and so, you know, I think we often mention environment and climate change because it's one of the last remaining areas, I think, in the relationship where all, uh, where, where trust hasn't been lost. And so there, there, there remains some, um, you know, uh, uh, trust capacity as it were. Um, and and working uh, good working relationships and so I think this is pretty important to preserve mm -hmm. if we want to get to our you know 2030 2050 uh, emission targets other 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 areas you know in the current uh, global context post covid I think that one clear area where working relationships you know, this is between Canada but the rest of the world and China need to be preserved is clearly the debt relief so that restructuring of you know developing countries so this is one area where you know we we have no choice right we have to we have to um figure out how to 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 work with um uh, china so uh, difficult but mm -hmm. uh, necessary in some areas yeah of course just a quick uh follow-up on on the environmental front or clean energy or any of these other cooperative fronts have you seen or would you what kind of um measures or cooperations at the sub-national level would you like to see or have you already seen? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I don't know that I have a really good answer uh, to that. Um, I think that there was up till recently um, a fair level of enthusiasm at provincial levels to pursue um, you know, initiatives with China. Um, the recent years, especially the COVID crisis, you know, has rendered exchanges so much more difficult just in terms of, you know, physically, uh, uh, you know, going back and forth. And the, the situation has not improved so much, including because of the flight, flights problem, you know. And so there are, I think, if we are to, you know, at the provincial uh, or subnational levels, um, you know, going to explore, um, pursuing or re-pursuing, re you know, some levels of exchanges. I think that the, the, the whole aspect of uh, visas, flights, and the, the overall atmosphere of the relationship has really slowed this down. So I'm not sure that we're seeing a whole lot of activity uh, right now, much, much less, of course, than prior to COVID, yeah. Mm -hmm. Professor Holden, one last question. What do you make of Blinken's recent visit with Xi and, his, and uh, senior officials in his administration? 
some have said that the point of it was really to stabilize U.S.-China relations without really moving on any contentious issues like Taiwan or others. And in my opinion, one of the biggest advances was really that the two sides affirmed people-to-people exchanges between the two countries, which hopefully won't be walked back by um, Biden's comments about Xi subsequently. So how do you see uh, U.S.-China talks, both this one, the ones that have happened previously and the ones that will happen uh, in the future, have any repercussions or meanings for Canada's relationship with China? And I ask this in the context that, um, you know, that uh, Trudeau doesn't have the same FaceTime as Biden has with with Xi Jinping. Uh, You're muted, Professor Holton. I was determined not to do that. Um, I guess I would see Blinken's trip really as a, a portion of and building on what was done in Bali in November between the Chinese and American presidents. Um, Blinken's trip, as you know, was interrupted by the balloon thing. And that threw everything aside and compromised the potential to have uh, a proper bilateral visit. But I think that my understanding, without being within State Department or the White House, is that I see Blinken's trip as merely a part of that larger uh, presidential-led effort to stabilize the relationship. I'd certainly agree with that. Um, I think there was an agreement, as I can see, in both prior agreement, probably in both um, visits, the Bali bilateral and in Beijing, to avoid in public comments the inflammatory language that in the past has somehow undercut the relation, the the outcome of the of the uh, meeting. For Canada, we're not a great power, and. We, we have a lot of international exposure. We're a member of so many different clubs, even some that America doesn't, isn't part of, the Commonwealth, the Francophonie, et cetera. We're joiners and we have international policies important to us, but we don't have the global responsibilities. When things have gone badly wrong in Asia Pacific, as happened in 1941, when the Japanese attacked Canadian troops in Hong Kong, in, in, in Hong Kong, in, in Korea in 1950, even in, you could say, in Afghanistan, we had little to do, if anything, to do with the creation of those issues, but we were immediately drawn in and found ourselves in in the conflict allied with our American cousins. And that is always the case. So it's a frustrating thing a bit. I used to tell my American diplomatic colleagues, if you're an American diplomat, I don't know if anyone in your listeners plays poker, you always have either full house or four of a kind. If you're a Canadian diplomat, uh, you're playing with two pair. Now, in fact, it takes more skill to play with two pair than with a strong hand. So mm-hmm. we are, um, it's not that these things don't affect us, just our ability to influence events globally is much reduced compared to a great power like the United States. Um, but given that we're affected, at some point, uh, I think whether it's biodiversity, trade, people-to-people links, which I think was significant that that was highlighted during Blinken's trip, uh, we need to re-engage in some fashion. We now stand, previously, I, one could argue, that we were um, amongst the earliest of the G7 to maintain relations with China, and we had strong relations. Now, every G7 country, beside Canada, um, and throw in the five eyes, if you wish, has more contact with China at senior level than we do. So we're at a really at a level where, um, although our interests coincide largely with those in the United States, particularly on the security side, they don't coincide perfectly. And I think we need a renewed dialogue of some fashion. Um, I think 
Pascal is correct in saying this is not going to be done overnight, but it needs to be gradually rebuilt, if only to talk about problems. I mean, we talk about Blinkenstrip, but the month before that, CIA director was in was in Beijing. I don't think that he was there to cut ribbons at primary schools. I suspect that was tough talk behind closed doors about issues one has with the other. And I would argue we've got issues with China now as well, and we need to put ourselves in a position where we can at least talk frankly, directly to them. Well, Professor Holden, Professor Masso, thank you again for joining us today on this conversation about Canada-China relations. Uh, and this podcast, again, is sponsored by the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this discussion, listen to Why is Secretary Blinken's trip to China so important on NCUSCR interviews wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.